Welcome to the Keystone Kickoff Show, brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Hello and welcome to the Keystone Kickoff Show. I'm Jim Galante, along with T. Frank Carr. We've got a fun show for you today, but first off, T. Frank, just a little bit of a slow start for us today because you had some domestic issues, eh? Yeah, so, you know, one of the many benefits of having pets is that I, when I'm working alone in my house, I can talk to them and not go crazy because I'm an extrovert that, Jim, this is one of the main times that I interact with humans anymore is when we do this show. Uh, the downside is they randomly puke uh, and then you have to clean it up, even if it's right when you're supposed to be recording your weekly segment, so... Had to do that this morning. So apologies for being a little bit late. And as I mentioned to you earlier, reason number 38, Jim does not have cats, dogs, or children right there. All right, T. Frank. The last couple of weeks, we've been uh, doing something that I've really enjoyed, which is getting your positional review or even like scouting reports on the different positions, which have led to the uh, different players. What we're going to do today, a little bit different, is I'm calling it the scouting report on the coordinators. On the offensive side, Mike Yersich, the defensive side, Manny Diaz. Before we get to that, though, I do have one side question because it is uh, a news item from this week. They announced whiteout, helmet out, stripe out yeah. for the... Iowa game will be white out. West Virginia will be the helmet stripe out, I guess. And then the stripe yeah. out for Michigan. Do you react to those things at all? They're cool to look at. That's about it. <laughs> you know, look, I, so this is the thing. When they first announced the stripe out, I, I'm, I'm a very, I'm usually a pretty optimistic person unless it comes to uh, crowds. And, and I, I don't want to use the word mob, but like getting people to agree to do something and to all do it, like, I'm always shocked that the stripe out works because it's just like it takes uh, it takes 100 or 200 people to go like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I don't care. I'm wearing what I wear. I'm mean, I wear what I always wear. And then you have this weird white blob in a, in a stripe out section. So I'm always amazed they can get people to do it. And, and I'm the power of collective effort should never should never be diminished. What we could do when we all work together. <laughs> Well, to me, I'm fascinated by it because I think the whiteout has more effect than the stripeout, but it's like the unwritten rule is they can't do more than one whiteout per season. Yeah. And, you know, then with the one stripe, like the helmet stripe, it's essentially a whiteout with one section not getting the memo and yeah. wearing their traditional blue. So it's as close to a whiteout as you can get, but uh-uh. It's not a whiteout. We're only having one of those a year. We'll be talking about that a little more later in the week with Andrew Pichet. But let's get back to our scouting reports on the coordinators. Let, let's start with Mike Yursich, the offensive coordinator. He goes into his third year at Penn State. I mean, we had the discussion last year that it was nice for Sean Clifford as quarterback to have the same offensive coordinator for at least two years in a row. My first question is... Mike Yursich coming in, he had quite a history. He went straight from Shippensburg offensive coordinator to Oklahoma State, had yeah. a good run there, then a couple years, one at um, Ohio State, one at Texas, before landing at Penn State. 
What did you expect from him when he first got here? So that's really interesting. I, it's a prelim, it's always a preliminary sort of uh, analysis of the kind of broad strokes. What do you do? What do you like? What is your system? There were only so many ways to cut up the pizza. You know what I mean? Like there's only so many different things you can do and believe in as an offensive coordinator. So um, he's a spread offense, offensive coordinator, tries to use the entire field and then tries to use different ways of attacking to create um, uh, explosive plays. And, and I'd say the primary thing about Mike Yersich is he likes to throw the ball down the field. Vertical passing game, attack the seams, attack the outside, create mismatches against um, the college secondary, which is stretched because of the field boundary split, and, and try to take advantage of those things. What you do beyond that is then personnel and a lot of different parts of, you know, where you are at the time during his timeline. I'd say the other thing that is important to note, and this is something that he said right off the bat, and it's something that, you know, me who's more analytically inclined can go, yeah, 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 and kind of brush off. But running the ball is very important to him because if you are going to establish a threat to pull the defense forward, it has to be something, whether it's a screen, short passes, or the running game. His preference is to use the running game, and historically, from what I've seen from him, inside and outside zone to stretch the, the field horizontally. So then you have these horizontal stretch of the outside zone game, which you can pair with other things and then attack deep. So you have this threat in the box that you that the defense has to be aware of creating these these fissures in the defense. It's all about creating space for the quarterback and making easier predetermined throws. So you don't have to do the heavy mental lifting um, for the quarterback on every single play. That's really what every coordinator is trying to do. It's how do you go about doing that? And, and for him, traditionally, it has been. Uh, the running game, and then the vertical passing game. And and the way he goes about that has evolved, I think, over time. What's fascinating to me is using the two points that you make about the vertical passing game and the running game is still very important to him. You know, we see the flashy mounted numbers that he puts up before he got here and thought, this is the guy who throws the ball all over the place. And I think we diminished the fact that he's going to want a good running game also as part of that. What's fascinating to me, though, is his first year at Penn State didn't have a good running game, whether you blame it on the running backs or the offensive line or both. And I'm not sure Sean Clifford was great at passing the ball down the field. So right, right off the bat in 21, he had to adapt, didn't he? Yeah, so they didn't really have an excellent offensive line to protect for that deep passing game, and they didn't really have a good running back group to make up for any mistakes or, you know, kind of erase some of the the problems along the offensive line. <laughs> so what they did was they threw the ball to Jahan Dotson, I think, 150 times. Like, it felt like every single play was a throw to Dotson. So that what they relied on then was the screen game. And he became very creative and leaned on that part of his playbook to run a lot of wide receiver screens and then plays off of that and then tried to work horizontally that way to to alleviate the box number. So give the offensive line the easiest numbers possible to run into and then put the emphasis on the tight ends and running backs and whoever he had out in the flat, whether they were basically making a new offensive line out in uh, at the numbers to block for a receiver, which is essentially a run play. 
So um, that's on the quarterback in a, in a different mental facet to properly read the rotation of the safeties and to properly read the defensive run structure so that he knows whether to keep the ball in the running back's belly on that read option or to throw. And, you know, that's there's there's a bit of a um, a gray area there of like sometimes it's even hard to tell because the decision is so quick. Is this a read option? Is this an RPO? Is this just a straight screen? Um, but working all of those different tenants in to try and take advantage of the numbers and where the defense is positioned on every play. And that's what they did in 2021 and tried then to fold in the vertical passing game once they'd established Jahan Dotson as a run and catch threat. And if I recall correctly, it was it not Wisconsin on the road was his first game. Yeah. And that first half, uh, they barely got a first down that first half. Yeah. And the second half, they just came out doing those little wide receiver screens, which they said, okay, yeah. this is our version of the running game. And all I could think of is Mike Yurcich at halftime was like, ah, oh, so this is what it's going to be like here at Penn State, right? I think it was bleep this, honestly, because what they, <laughs> here's the problem. Going into that game, James Franklin basically said, yeah, we're, we can throw the ball on this secondary. This secondary isn't very good. And he was right. <laughs> like, if you looked at the number of times Jahan Dotson was open and didn't get the football because the pass rush was just wiping out the offensive play concept. They were able to hit a couple of them. And that was really the story of that season was they were able to hit a couple of deep shots, but whether Dotson wasn't able to go up in contested situations with Clifford throwing the ball, you know, under throwing a little bit or whether the deep passing game was never really fully integrated because is the first year in the system and the offensive line uh, had a very bad overlap in in uh, areas of weakness with the quarterback who has an area of weakness when under pressure. So getting through that season was very important. Uh, and they, as we all know, they they barely squeaked by. And uh, yes, yeah, some would say they didn't squeak by um, if you look at the second half of the season. So let's um, look at the quarterback usage. Sean Clifford, it seemed to me like there were times, especially in this last year, that Sean Clifford, we talked about read options where the quarterback holding on to the ball and running was part of it. It seemed like there were times when Sean Clifford just avoided doing that, and he ran less during the Mike Yersich era. And I know this is conjecture because you and I talked about it a bit. Was this a situation where Sean Clifford was, you know what, I'm I, I'm just better off handing it off to a running back who's very good at this. Or do you think it was somewhat by design from the coaching staff? So if there's, this is, this is tough. 2021, it was not the best option at all times to hand the ball off to the running back. 2022, different story. So that's on the quarterback. That's his decision on every play, whether he's when he's reading the defensive end or the end man on the line of scrimmage, whether it's a linebacker that he's then reading or if it's a defensive end, sometimes even a defensive tackle, depending on the alignment and what you're trying to accomplish his job on every play. So even on running plays, the quarterback is making decisions and he's got to make good decisions in these situations. So if the defensive end crashes on the running back on the on the dive, which is, you know, the inside zone or man concept where they're running straight ahead then it's the quarterback's job to keep the ball and run with it. Um, I do think, it, you know, at times there are checks that the defense can make where they can they can blitz a safety or they can rotate a linebacker. They can take away that quarterback running game by rotation if, they, if they're facing a quarterback that isn't fast enough and athletic enough to 
make that guy who's screaming over into the void uh, look silly. You know, like that's where athletic quarterbacks can make anybody look silly in space. But then there are times when it's third and one and you need one yard and and he gave the ball to Nick Singleton and he would have had a first down or a big play if he kept the ball. You can say he wanted to give the ball to the guy that was going to get the first down um, or you can say he should have kept the ball. I think that there were times last year that he should have kept the ball. And I think that's the case in uh, with going forward with the offense that we're going to see this year. Drew Aller is still going to have to keep the ball at times in order to keep the defense honest and to create those quarterback explosive plays. That is still going to be a part of the offense. That's not going away. They may de-emphasize it. They may augment how they use it with Bo Perbula in certain situations, but it's going to be, it's a tenant of the offense. It has to be. All right. Very good. Uh, when we come back quarter number two, I'm going to ask T Frank how the offense changed from 21 to 22. Stick around for that. Hey guys, this is Andrew from 409 Tailgate Club, here to talk to you about our new Coffee Barbecue Dry Rub set. Over the years, we've developed some great tailgate sauces and barbecue dry rubs, but our new coffee rubs are totally unique spice blends, low in sodium, and feature Happy Valley's finest coffee, W.C. Clark's, roasted right in the cheese shop in downtown State College. So head on over to 409tailgateclub.com, grab yourself some coffee rubs, and remember, always tailgate with honor. We are. Hi, this is Dustin Hawkinsmith from the Keystone Sports Network. For the best Penn State football analysis and commentary, go to KeystoneSportsNetwork.com. The rest of the KSN team and I will bring you game reviews, player evaluation, recruiting news, and plenty more. You may even hear directly from some of your favorite recruits. That's KeystoneSportsNetwork.com. You can also take Keystone Sports Network with you. Go to your app store and download Keystone Sports for your mobile device. For Penn State football news 52 weeks a year, count on the Keystone Sports Network. StateCollege.com is your one-stop source for news, sports, opinion, entertainment, and community events. Over a decade of experience covering the Nittany Lions from reporter Ben Jones. Lively commentary from columnist Mike Porman and others. Local perspective, local expertise, local information from Penn State's hometown website, StateCollege.com. Trust StateCollege.com for daily coverage of the school, team, and place you love. It's quarter number two on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Welcome back to the Keystone Kickoff Show. It is quarter number two. He's T. Frank. I'm Jim. We're doing our scouting report on the two coordinators. We started with offensive coordinator Mike Yursich through quarter number one. We're going to finish up with him, then shift over to Manny Diaz. Let's pick it up where we left off, uh, T. Frank. We saw year one what Mike Yursich was. Now going into year two, the 2022 season, a couple things. This is now his second year in the program. He knows who Sean Clifford is. Probably had a better uh, offensive line. Definitely had a better running back room, had very good tight ends, and no longer had Jahan Dotson as one of his wide receivers. How did he adapt in year two, second year with the team, and a bit of a different uh, talent base on offense? So I don't know that it was necessarily an adaptation of personnel usage, but it was an adaptation of uh, target allocation. And that's what happens when you lose a bona fide number one receiver. 
Um, so what happened last year is, and I think we we've t- we talked about this pretty consistently on the show, that they went to more 12 personnel, which is two tight ends, and they attacked more uh, through the intermediate part of the field with tight ends and really spread the ball around. Parker Washington from the slot became um, more of an inside attack versus using the screens as much. And then, um, you know, complementing with a running game and having a more balanced offense, which I think was clear by the end of the season that they were um, using those areas more than they were attacking down the field. But when they did attack down the field, it was more effective because all the other threats on the offense were balancing out the field and teams couldn't play umbrella coverage and use a minimal amount of resources to defend the run. Like you had to actually play the run against Penn state, which opened up more opportunities downfield for Keandre Lambert Smith and some of those explosive plays we saw towards the end of the season. So I think we saw a little more of what Mike Yersich wants to be towards the end of the season. And then the curiosity for me spinning all of this forward is he's always used the middle of the field more so than spread. Most spread offenses, most spread offenses are kind of, run the ball between the tackles and then throw the ball to the screens and then throw downfield. He's much more of a a tackle parts of the field sort of coordinator. But um, as this thing gets going a little better, do do they go back to a more 11 personnel this year? It seems like it's going to be the same thing of uh, big formations, run the ball, try to to create explosive plays by getting to the, the running back to the, to the outside of the formation. And then, explosive plays off of that. So um, this past season, we saw more balance. And when you see more balance, you typically see better play. And you mentioned the 12 formation, one running back, two tight ends. He also uh, threw at us, I guess they call it a 23 formation, two running backs, three tight ends. Yeah. And I, I've just always been fascinated with it. And I know this is not their standard base package, but I thought it showed great creativity that he was able to adapt to the strengths of the team. Yeah, the, I mean, he's a good offensive coordinator, and you're right. Like, the it's funny how we talk so much about that, and it's like 2% of their offense. Like, genuinely, it's about 2% of the time they're in that formation in very specific situations, but it does show, um, especially through alignment, and not even not even just when they're in 23, when they're in the, the T formation or some of those heavy packages the ability to line up to what are essentially fullbacks in your tight ends and to use motion to create defensive fissures in, in either the run formation or some of the pass alignments. He's a, he's a bona fide offensive coordinator. Like that's what you get. You get creativity, you get um, effective use of personnel and you get some um, fun trickery when you want to uh, and not even just fun trickery in the sense of like a double reverse or a, or a throwback pass, but these creative things that are done intentionally, not just out of subterfuge, but okay, we know the defense works like this. So we are going to do this and this in this specific situation to break that rule and to create a big play. And he's very good about finding those things and creating those big plays. So, I mean, he's like I said, he's a bona fide offensive coordinator that brings to you the creativity, the play design and knows how to sequence plays in order to create those situations. So, I mean, we're seeing as the talent gets better across the board, more and more of what he can do. And from my standpoint, T Frank, him only using it on occasion as a fan, what I enjoyed is because there were a finite number of plays, 
it was easier to follow it and follow the development of it and what they were doing because it was a finite number. It was easier to watch it and understand the different yeah. things that they did. It's it's funny because halfway through the season, if the offense stalled out, I kept getting questions on social media or on our message board. Like, what happened to Mike Yersich being creative? Where are all these creative plays? And the point of 2021 was the basic offense wasn't working. Surviving on trick plays is like eating ice cream for lunch. Like, sure, it feels great the first couple times, but you're going to get sick of it. You're going to get sick, generally, if you are not having a steady diet of what is tried and true, which is the basic inside zone plays. You you have to have those things to establish your original credible threat of, okay, we run inside zone read option. Well, what happens when we run inside zone read option, but then we pair it with something else that creates an explosive play? You have to have the original play and you have to have the original threat to then create the the in a really effective creative play. So you're right. Like the the fewer of them you have, the better it is and the better it feels when you're watching it as well, because it, it it's it's intentional. It's like using the, the quarterback's legs in the running game. If you use it too much, it means that your base running offense isn't working very well. And you need to have a hard conversation about what's going on there because the quarterback run game is a cheat code. But again, if you're always using the cheat code, something else is wrong. So that offensive balance that we talked about last year, they established much more of that balance than uh, they had in years past. And you saw in the games where they struggled, the balance struggled. They didn't run the ball as well. Maybe they couldn't pass the ball as well in a certain game. And you saw stagnation at times and not as many points. I understand what you're saying, T. Frank, and I appreciate it. I still think you're underselling ice cream at lunch. Last question on the offensive side. Drew Aller is going to be the quarterback this coming season. I think the offensive line is going to be solid. The running backs we know are good. How do you think the offense will adapt now with Drew Aller out there? Will it look a little different because of that? So this is the this is the question that, for me, is unanswerable because unlike, you know, in, in this situation where we're talking about this, I can speculate with the best of them. It's one of my things I do professionally. But when you ask me how is the offense going to change, I genuinely don't know because I genuinely don't know what Drew Aller's strengths and weaknesses are. We can assume he's a better deep ball thrower. We can assume that, but we don't know that. What if he hits a higher percentage, but then he throws the ball to the defense more? because he's trying them more? What if he's trying to fit the ball into tighter windows because he has a stronger arm? Does he use the middle of the field more effectively? Is he better in play action situations? Does he not like to bootleg? What What are the things that he does or what he doesn't like to do that will help dictate the offense? Um, so from a boilerplate situation, what we know about Drew Aller, strong arm, and I think pretty good processing skills. The potential here, and that's what we're talking about. Potential, not what it's going to be. The potential is that he will open up all parts of the field. He will be able to hit the uh, far flat on a comeback route. Um, he'll be able to access every point with his arm so the defense can't cheat. You can't rotate away from the field and stuff the box because the quarterback can hit the, a hitch six yards, 27 40 yards away laterally, and then that guy can run for six yards, and then you get a 14-yard play. Um, you can't do certain things. You can't hide certain coverages if the quarterback can go through a full field read. 
But at what point does Drew Aller know what he's reading? And when is he convicted and does he know what he's looking at? That's the, the, that's the biggest thing because that's going to unlock all of his physical potentials. What I've said, the difference between him and Bo Perbula is Bo's game is more what you're used to. It's more traditional of the decisions are within the structure of the offense, whether it's the read option, RPO, quick passes, um, kind of standard college stuff. Drew Aller's true strengths lie in the in the difficult things of I can find a 15-yard dig on the backside of a play when I don't like what's on the front side, and I can hit it because I can turn around and I can rifle the ball in between the corner and the safety. That's what he can bring you. But can he do that yet? And that's going to be the question of when he's comfortable, when does he believe he can do all of those things, and what sort of plays do they dial up for him to major in with this offense. And that's going to be a discovery thing for all of us, including opposing defenses through the first month of the season. Um, so that's what I would say at the, at the biggest potential, he can do all of it um, from a mental and a physical standpoint, but when and where he falls on that timeline, everyone uh, is guessing. And I would say even a little bit that the coaching staff thinks they know what he can do, but when the pressure's on, he's never really been put in the situation to carry an offense do they ask him to even do that, you know, until certain points in the season? I could see Illinois being a really tough game. They're really good against the run. He might have to make some throws that game. Is he ready to do that then? And that's going to be kind of the timeline of how does Drew Aller look next fall? How much, T, Frank, the fact that we know it's a good running game that they have, good running backs and improving offensive line, just how much does that make a difference for a first-year starting quarterback, a young quarterback? Well, it's it, it. we go back to the balance idea. You can't overplay one part of the field or the other. Um, what a team can do next year is they can stuff the box and say, okay, we're playing eight, eight and a half guys in the box. Like that safety's cheating down. And say that Nick Singleton isn't going to win this game for you. And maybe Nick Singleton still breaks some of those runs. But what it does is, you now have three in coverage, essentially. Like you're 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 leaning towards more cover three, so it becomes more predictable what the coverages are, which makes it easier for the young quarterback. And then play action is more effective. So all of those all of those zones are stretched because you're bringing everyone forward for that legitimate threat of the run game. And then you can play action off of that, whether it's with tight ends on uh, leak, you know, leaks out into the flat, whether it's um, flag routes going seven routes down the field, or if you just want to go play action vertical and throw the ball down the seams against uh, teams that are running a single high safety, it creates more margin for error in the passing game, more, more, literally more space. RPOs are the same thing. RPOs are play actions, essentially, where it's a legitimate run every play, and then the quarterback makes the decision based on the player he's reading, whether or not he's going to throw the ball. And the idea is that the window is so gigantic that you just throw it in there and it's a, it's an easy completion because you don't have to fit the ball into these tight windows to beat coverages and beat linebackers, et cetera. So that's what it does. It creates easier lanes for the quarterback to throw. Very good T Frank, as promised in quarter number four, we'll talk about Manny Diaz, but first your questions. We ask T Frank. Hey guys, this is Andrew from 409 Tailgate Club, here to talk to you about our new coffee barbecue dry rub set. Over the years, we've developed some great tailgate sauces and barbecue dry rubs, but our new coffee rubs are totally unique spice blends, low in sodium, and feature Happy Valley's finest coffee, W.C. Clark's, roasted right in the cheese shop in downtown State College. 
So head on over to 409tailgateclub.com, grab yourself some coffee rubs, and remember, always tailgate with honor. We are. Hi, this is Dustin Hawkinsmith from the Keystone Sports Network. For the best Penn State football analysis and commentary, go to keystonesportsnetwork.com. The rest of the KSN team and I will bring you game reviews, player evaluation, recruiting news, and plenty more. You may even hear directly from some of your favorite recruits. That's keystonesportsnetwork.com. You can also take Keystone Sports Network with you. Go to your app store and download Keystone Sports for your mobile device. For Penn State football news 52 weeks a year, count on the Keystone Sports Network. StateCollege.com is your one-stop source for news, sports, opinion, entertainment, and community events. Over a decade of experience covering the Nittany Lions from reporter Ben Jones. Lively commentary from columnist Mike Porman and others. Local perspective, local expertise, local information from Penn State's hometown website, StateCollege.com. Trust StateCollege.com for daily coverage of the school, team, and place you love. Let's get back to the action on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. And welcome back to the Keystone Kickoff Show. It is quarter number three. That means it's time to ask T. Frank. We take your questions. T. Frank answers them. And at the end of the segment, he'll pick out the best question. That questioner will win the prize pack from 409tailgateclub.com. Great barbecue sauces, barbecue rubs, including the new coffee barbecue rubs. They also have the great Bloody Mary mix. So go to 409tailgateclub.com. T. Frank, are you ready for your questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's start with our friend David from Lancaster who says, I'd ask about Barney Amore not signing with an NFL team yet and to break down his film compared to other punters, but I know you'd take the whole segment, so I'll pass on that one. Uh, no, I, I, I would not. I, I would I would take the whole segment <laughs> to tell you that I don't know anything about special teams. <laughs> I, I, I think David is pulling your leg there. Yeah. All right. So my, he says, my other question is in previous years we've seen defensive ends slide inside on obvious passing situations. How different is it for a defensive end to generate a pass rush from inside compared to their normal position, and are there certain traits needed to be able to handle sliding inside? Yeah, it's what you'd expect. Power, length, and strength are the biggest things on the interior. Um, And what you've got to deal with depending on a bunch of different factors. So this is going to be super general. Um, But generally, the reason that uh, defensive ends are more valuable in a pass rushing sense is that it's more consistent pressure rate where it's easier and there are more true one-on-ones where it's the tackle on the defensive end. Sometimes you get chips from the running backs and tight ends when you're that good. But that means that you have won enough individual one-on-ones with the tackle that the offense has to allocate more resources to you. From the interior, there are more options to block and there are more opportunities to double team. So the center, depending on the call, whether it's a right or left call or if it's an even split, the center might be able to come over and prevent you from using an inside move, for example, if you're lined up in the B-gap as a three-technique defensive tackle as a defensive end. So you might get a double team from there. 
the running back can step up in the hole more easily and can guard more of the offensive interior by stepping up, even though he might have a designated hole, he can come in and help more from that angle as well. So that's why edge rushers that are consistent in pressure, um, that's why they're so valuable because a, they'll get pressure more regularly and B they'll force then the offense to use more resources to stop them if they then become that. So on the interior, you need to have a guy who's powerful and can get through the you know get through the garbage, get through the trash. It's a smaller area. You can't run up field and create space. But that's what's really interesting is a lot of what teams are doing now is they're aligning defensive tackles at what you would call a five technique, which is right over the uh, the offensive tackle, and then you're lining up your defensive ends at a nine or a ten, which is like outside the second tight end in theory, like so far out that what you're doing is you're creating these extreme angles that makes it harder for guys to double team interior players because you you'll rush inside. So everyone um, who's lined up outside rushes in and that creates these angles that the guard has to then overset. And you can there's so many things in nuance that you can get into this where this is where you might see denied Dennis Sutton in the future. And I think that's where kind of this conversation is leading. And David, very smart and astute question. You might see deny lined up basically as a defensive end, but then rushing inside, creating these extreme angles to get more one on ones with a with a guard and to then win through power, length and and space. And so there's a bunch of different things that, de- that defensive coordinators can do to create these one-on-ones and they all have, you know, weaknesses, right? So if everyone's too far outside, then you're going to create running lanes for the quarterback inside if you're not careful. So uh, that would be, I think, without going down a massive rabbit hole, the main thing you're looking for from a defensive end is you need to have that size and strength so that when you're in a small space, you can win with power and get through a guy instead of just being able to run around him as a uh, speed rusher. It's good to have a lot of guys who can rush the quarterback is the bottom line. Let's get to Tommy in Alexandria. T. Frank, have you ever scouted a high school player and found that you have a very different rating than the consensus? Are there any traits in particular that you find causes scouts to come to different conclusions? Oh, <laughs> the consensus in terms of the scouting industry, or the consensus in terms of public perception, because public perception, yes, almost all the time. Um, but when it comes to let's just say for on three, for example, um, you know, on three, Charles Power is the head of scouting. And I think he does a phenomenal job, like genu- genuinely. I I see things the same way as him. So I have very few qualms and it's like. I don't um, one of the reasons I got into doing this is because I didn't agree or believe the assessments of NFL uh, talent evaluators on television. Right. So the Mel Kuypers of the world, I, I thought that they had kind of a outdated or wrong view of things. I don't feel that way about, you know, at least our internal rankings at on three. Um, but from the public perception, yeah, that happens all the time. Um, and it's well, usually me, because uh, of let, hype. Let me. Let, OK, sure. well, let me rephrase it a little bit. I, it's not unusual to see even services have very different rankings of players. Now, I realize yeah. sometimes it's, well, we haven't seen him live. We ha- he wasn't at our camp where we saw him play, so we get a better take. Yeah. So, But there are different evaluations on players. And I think I've even, you and I have chatted where you've talked about, gee, this guy, he's listed as a four-star 
but I'm not so sure. Yeah. Or this guy's listed as quote unquote only a three star, but T Frank says, Hey, don't let that fool you. He's a very good player. Yeah. So when that I think that's the kind of thing that we're looking at. Are there things yeah. that you think are issues that create that? Um, yes. So this is the hard part about high school scouting is that it's about getting accurate information. And despite what fans think, the measurements and the testing numbers are unbelievably important in, in recruiting. So if you've got a guy, and this has been a, a huge topic of conversation at bluewhiteillustrated.com lately is arm length, talking about defensive linemen and how guys, so if, if you like a guy, so let, I, I hate to bring this up, but it's just, it's, it's the easiest thing. Defensive tackle, every, every Penn State fan I talk to wants a 300-pound player hard stop. Absolutely no other things matter. I want a guy who's big. I want a big, fat guy in the middle of the defense. But what if he doesn't have the proper uh, measurables for the position that have 50 years of data behind them saying, if you have arms that are too short or if you don't have these testing numbers that we need, it doesn't matter how big you are, you will be maybe just an average player. Maybe it doesn't mean that you're not good or you don't go to the NFL, but you're just an average player that doesn't make the impact that you think because that guy does not have the overall tools to compete against like athletes at the next level. And so that's one area where accurate testing information between services can change some um, some rankings. The other part is positional ambiguity. Uh, a guy that is a perfect example here, Jamonte Waller, is a, just is a, a five-star in some places. Uh, on three is him a three-star. Because he's not, a, he, he plays defensive end, but he's six foot tall. So if you don't believe that guy is a defensive end, or you believe he's going to play defensive end, but he doesn't reach the uh, measurements you're looking for at the position, and you're you're projecting long term success, then that's an area where position ambiguity can make a guy either fall down or rise up in in the rankings. And then of course the last thing is um, like tight ends, right? So. Luke Reynolds is an unbelievable athlete that has very raw situation, doesn't have a lot of um, exposure overall, but he's a great athlete. So when you're not sure, maybe you just make a guy a three-star. But you can go in and you can watch this game and say, okay, all of this translates. It's just time on task that's going to create that projection of success. So those are a couple of the areas where I think that you get into the biggest debates about uh, star ranking and potential. But really what it comes down to is, what are their measurables and what are those compared to the prototype of the position? How close do they match that prototype? And what are the factors that that player has that can overcome deficiencies um, in order to make them a successful player? Because you're not going to go 100% by the, the numbers every single time. You got to watch the film and understand what are they good at, et cetera, et cetera. But the measurements absolutely matter. And if you say that they don't, like we're not going to have a very long conversation because the, the, there's a reason that all of these teams collect all of this data. It is it is important for those players to be successful and to reach the ceilings of four and five star that we all give them uh, throughout the process. I think, T. Frank, there are players who are five stars. They're obvious they're five stars. They fit all the measurables and they do it on tape. I think where questions come in is if they're, they have a shortcoming somewhere, whether it's arm length, or I think the perfect example going to the NFL draft, Bryce Young. Everyone loves his tape, loves what yep. he does on the field, but he's not tall enough. One scout says, oh, 
that's a red flag, a big red flag. Others will say, well, he's so talented. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where those inconsistencies come from. Yeah. And deny Dennis Sutton is a great example where he had the five star frame. He's not as fast as a defensive end as you would want for, you know, a five star. He's not a four fives athlete. And he was a little stiff. But those are the things you can work on. And again, this is the part that nobody knows is, well, not oh, not nobody. <laughs> Some people know how hard these guys work, right? So that's another part of the recruiting process that we, from the evaluation standpoint, only get a glimpse every once in a while is that how, what's the internal working? What's the, the, the mentality and all of those things of a player? And if you've got a five-star work ethic and five-star talent, that's when the, the cliche of your effort is going to dictate how successful you are. Because otherwise, like there are other things dictating how successful you are, but you can't control those things. So there, there's always that last wild card element in this conversation. I don't really have time enough for another question, but just to oh, add on to this. Oh, come on. <laughs> All right. You want it? Here we go. Real quick. How's yeah. quarterback recruiting going? Is Van Buren a lock to Oregon? Who among the other names do you like and who do we have the best chance with? Go ahead. All right. Quickly. So this is great. This is a perfect question. Um, so... I would liken it to the way the tackle uh, market kind of evolved for Penn State down the road here is that I think that they have enough names that having seen the film, they're going to get a quality guy this cycle. And I think maybe even better than the situation with Jackson Smallick last year, which I like Jackson. I think he's better than kind of his tape because of the, ar- the, the collarbone injury. The guys this cycle have legitimate juice. They have arm strength. They have the some of the upside intangibles of being closer to Drew Aller in that prototype of the position. Um, Michael Van Buren, I don't expect him to be at Penn State. Uh, none of that seems to be going that way. So surprise, another St. Francis player not going to Penn State. All right, that was Rick from Wayne, PA. We will start quarter four with our winner. Stay tuned with for that. Hey, guys, this is Andrew from 409 Tailgate Club, here to talk to you about our new coffee barbecue dry rub set. Over the years, we've developed some great tailgate sauces and barbecue dry rubs, but our new coffee rubs are totally unique spice blends, low in sodium, and feature Happy Valley's finest coffee, W.C. Clark's, roasted right in the cheese shop in downtown State College. So head on over to 409tailgateclub.com, grab yourself some coffee rubs, and remember, always tailgate with honor. We are. Hi, this is Dustin Hawkinsmith from the Keystone Sports Network. For the best Penn State football analysis and commentary, go to KeystoneSportsNetwork.com. The rest of the KSN team and I will bring you game reviews, player evaluation, recruiting news, and plenty more. You may even hear directly from some of your favorite recruits. That's KeystoneSportsNetwork.com. You can also take Keystone Sports Network with you. Go to your app store and download Keystone Sports for your mobile device. For Penn State football news 52 weeks a year, count on the Keystone Sports Network. StateCollege.com is your one-stop source for news, sports, opinion, entertainment, and community events. Over a decade of experience covering the Nittany Lions from reporter Ben Jones. Lively commentary from columnist Mike Porman and others. Local perspective, local expertise, local information from Penn State's hometown website, StateCollege.com. Trust StateCollege.com for daily coverage of the school, team, and place you love. 
We headed to the home stretch in quarter number four on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Welcome back to the Keystone Kickoff Show. It is quarter number four. And T. Frank, we got done with Ask T. Frank. We got, because we snuck one in, we got a total of three questions done in that segment. We need a winner. Who do you have? Yeah, I, I wanted I wanted to get at least three because I, sometimes I feel bad when we only get to two. Uh, Rick's question came in at the wire. It was a great question, but... You know, I do factor in the time at which we take to to answer questions, and it's as a part of my formula that I have written down on uh, nothing about who I'm going to pick to win. Tommy and Alexandria about the consensus ratings and and differences in positions, very topical uh, given some of the players and some of the positions and some of the debates we've been having recently in the Penn State football community at Blue White Illustrated uh, about you know some of the differences in opinion about what matters and doesn't matter in recruiting. And I thought that was a, a great way to at least discuss how I view these things. So thank you for the opportunity for that, Tommy. And I will give you okay, the win. Tommy, we'll that. be getting in touch with you. As we mentioned earlier, we're doing our scouting reports on the coordinators. We of course went overtime with the offensive coordinator, Mike Yersich. So let's get right to Manny Diaz on defense. I'll start with what I did with Mike Yursich, which was what was the expectation level coming in? My first reaction was we expected an aggressive defense for Manny Diaz based on everything we had heard. Is that what you expected? Yep. That's, I mean, we could end the segment there. It is the most aggressive thing I've ever seen. I don't know how he gets away with it because there, so the, I'll, I'll explain that is whenever you do something, in football, there's always a consequence. There's another side to it. So if you are aggressive and you, let's say, run blitz and you attack the line of scrimmage instead of having your linebackers read and react, they just attack downhill. Then what you've done is you've opened up massive holes on the second level for uh, def- the offense to throw the ball for catch and run over the middle. And yet that doesn't seem to ever be a huge problem for Penn State. There are some times in certain situations, certain defenses where they do allow guys uh, busted coverages. But um, whether it's run or pass, Manny Diaz attacks the line of scrimmage with a fury and a vengeance that I've never seen before. And somehow it works and it creates these really interesting situations that I hadn't ever really considered when thinking about football theoretically. Now, again, there are certain things that have to happen and there are certain personnel that have to be there for these things to happen or else there's massive defensive breakdowns, which I think you saw more at Miami. But right now, Penn State has the personnel and the talent to run Manny Diaz's defense very well. And it all starts with aggressive pressure, both in the run and against the pass. I was told previously by someone who knows the game better than me when I said, I'd like to see more blitzing. I'd like to see more aggressiveness. And the response was, of course you do, Jim. You're a fan, and you'll love it until you don't, which is when when your team gets burned. Yeah. So let's talk about what Manny Diaz does. How does he accomplish it without getting burned as much as you would expect for being as aggressive as he is? So I guess this is from a, I'll start with the past because this is something that I think I never expected. And this is something that I think is super interesting is 
um, on almost every single play, there's a linebacker blitzing because in, there are, and I don't know, this is the part where this is speculation on my part. There's, there's a thing that's a kind of a, a check at the, during the play of if your guy is pass protecting, then you blitz. It's a, it's a trigger blitz. And what happens because of the nature of Manny Diaz's defense and the reputation he has teams keep more guys in to block. So therefore line linebackers blitz more. Um, uh, Curtis Jacobs blitzed 126 times last year. That is one fewer pass rush than a mean van over the team's fourth defensive end. So like they're bringing pressure almost constantly. And because of that, there are fewer pass routes. Teams will keep their running backs and, and tight ends into chip or to, to pass block because there are so many people at the line of scrimmage or so many people coming on every single play. So it by nature limits the options for the offense against, I guess, traditionally conservative offensive coordinators that want to protect the quarterback. And if you want to throw the ball deep, Penn State has to get pressure on these plays, right? So you can't throw everybody at the line of scrimmage and then not get pressure or else that does open up these giant windows. But the way he is able to stunt and twist and move and not just rush in straight lines, but to create these free plays where the where a linebacker, defensive end, or defensive tackle gets the quarterback, the havoc he creates, the confusion he creates with these defensive schemes generates consistent pressure, which prevents some of these big plays. Now, against really good teams, like if you have Marvin Harrison Jr. against a corner on the outside running a go route and all the quarterback has to do is throw the ball to a spot immediately. That's where you can run into some problems, but here's the secret. You were going to run into that problem anyway, because it's the best receiver in America with one of the better quarterbacks in, in the country. So um, there are always weaknesses. I thought this defense would give up way more explosive plays than they did, but they have a great system on the back end of playing a great match, uh, a, a mix and match of zone and man coverage that um, you have the talent to produce at that level. And you have the schematic breaks to say, okay, you can't always predict what they're going to do because they'll run some too high coverages. They'll run uh, some cover two or some cover six to, mi to mix things up and not always be in cover one press coverage, man coverage, you know, uh, battling on the outside with receivers. And that's why, when we talk about recruiting to spin this back to what we talked about in recruiting is corner is so important in this defense because you've got to have these Joey Porter juniors and Kalen Kings. It is imperative that you don't have average corners above average corners are in. You have to have guys that can play one-on-one -on -one, that can play man coverage. So if you go and, and when I look at uh, Antoine Belgrave shoulder and John Mitchell, not only is John Mitchell a top 150 corner in terms of talent and movement skills and speed and all this stuff, but both of those guys at Mandarin High School play in a similar offense or defense where they're in man coverage all the time. So they have this knowledge coming in that you can see like for like transition of they play in Florida, they play against speed, they play man coverage, and they've got good technique. So those guys are so important to this defense and having free safeties that can match up in single coverage and having corners on the outside that are locked down superstars. It makes any defense better, but it makes this defense shine, which is what you saw and last you year. You beat me to the punch. I was going to ask you about the importance of the cornerbacks, and it's a lot easier when you have a Joey Porter Jr. or a Kalen King or even a Johnny Dixon back there. The other thing I wanted to ask about, though, is you mentioned – Curtis Jacobs and how many times he blitzed. 
But what I find interesting is seeing guys like I mentioned, Johnny Dixon. He seems to be very good in a blitz package from where he's coming from. Daquan Hardy yeah. seems to come often on a blitz. So it's not just the traditional guys, yep. oh, you think a linebacker's coming. They could be coming from anywhere. Yeah, run or pass too. Something that I kind of keyed in on during the season is they were doing a lot of zone dropping in, in run defense. So one of the things, again, this is all about creating negative plays. And um, one of the things I'm wondering is how does the Big Ten adjust to Manny Diaz? How do they, after seeing his defense with its first iteration, how do they try to attack some of the weaknesses? One of the things that they've done a lot is um, against zone running, especially they will drop a defensive end and they will, they will blitz somebody from the backside. So you're still bringing four defensive linemen essentially, but one of them might be Jonathan Sutherland on the backside or on the front side of a run play. And if you guess wrong and the defense or the offense runs towards the dropping defensive end, that can be a problem. That can be an area where a, a team can take advantage of and create explosive plays against you. Um, so there are some, there are, again, even in this, there's some trade-offs, some, some potential for big plays. Um, so that's one area. And then the, the, the other part about how they're able to create all of these negative plays, uh, in a, in a past sense is on third down, kind of like we are talking about with the, uh, with the T formation third down is, is a almost like a separate defense but it's a much smaller unit compared to how many times you play first and second down, right? So in these specific situations of third and medium or long, but it becomes such a famous thing because you've got seven, eight, nine guys in the line of scrimmage. It's called mugging the A-gap, where you've got two guys in the A-gap. One of them might blitz, both of them might blitz, neither of them might blitz. The offense has to be prepared with a proper call, especially if one of those guys is Abdul Carter. So then that changes how you're able to uh, block. And what it does is it, for the most part, creates these one-on-one -on -one situations where Johnny Dixon is rushing against a linebacker. So you've got a, a corner that is blitzing, or here's an even better one, Tig Brown against a, a running back, where he was he was so good as a, as a blitzer and had legitimate skills there that you're creating these, these advantages. Another, again, Abdul Carter against a running back, where he is basically a defensive end, rushing through the A-gap, getting immediate pressure in the face, of the quarterback, or if none of that works, you've got Chop Robinson, Adisa Isaac, and Denai Dennis Sutton on the outside who you can't double team because of all of the simulated pressure up front. Now, the obvious thing that we saw last year is sometimes when they brought all that pressure and they tried to drop out of it, they weren't able to drop in time to create those zones to prevent the quarterback from throwing the football or to get those easy interceptions. So there are times that even uh, Manny Diaz's defense, as good as it was last year, it broke down because the pressure or the play, the offense had a counter to it with a quick pass or something like that. So that's when you're really getting into the, the minutia on third down of um, all the different schemes and calls. But generally, it's about pressure, creating quick throws, and then players creating interceptions, sacks, forced fumbles, things like that, based on a quarterback's hurried decision. And Tig Brown last year was really good at three levels of the defense doing that. They're going to have to find somebody else to fill that role this Did year. Did you see changes in the defense as the year progressed? Again, this was his first year, his first year in the system, first year with these players. And part B of that question, did you see them change how they used Abdul Carter as the year advanced? 
that was really the way that the defense changed the most. Early on, they were using Tig Brown more as a underneath coverage defender spy reading the quarterback. As the season progressed, first, Abdul Carter was basically just an edge rusher. He was just coming off the edge. Then, as he got more comfortable and they saw what he could do, they put him over the A-gap, and they let him have that sort of delayed blitz. Maybe he drops into coverage, and they would use um, Johnny Dixon or Tig Brown as that um, pass rusher, spy, hybrid player. So they were able to drop more and use more uh, versatility in the defense to give more uh, unpredictability as to who was coming and who was dropping. So that's where I think the defense evolved and they were able to use those guys. The question is going to become like, what's the new crop of talent and what are their skills? Where do they operate best? And how do you make sure that you put them in a position to get the football, which is the whole Very point good, of the T defense. Frank. That is it for the show. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you join us next time on the Keystone kickoff show. Hey guys, this is Andrew from 409 Tailgate Club, here to talk to you about our new Coffee Barbecue Dry Rub set. Over the years, we've developed some great tailgate sauces and barbecue dry rubs, but our new coffee rubs are totally unique spice blends, low in sodium, and feature Happy Valley's finest coffee, W.C. Clark's, roasted right in the cheese shop in downtown State College. So head on over to 409tailgateclub.com, grab yourself some coffee rubs, and remember, always tailgate with honor. We are. Hi, this is Dustin Hawkinsmith from the Keystone Sports Network. For the best Penn State football analysis and commentary, go to keystonesportsnetwork.com. The rest of the KSN team and I will bring you game reviews, player evaluation, recruiting news, and plenty more. You may even hear directly from some of your favorite recruits. That's keystonesportsnetwork.com. You can also take Keystone Sports Network with you. Go to your app store and download Keystone Sports for your mobile device. For Penn State football news 52 weeks a year, count on the Keystone Sports Network. StateCollege.com is your one-stop source for news, sports, opinion, entertainment, and community events. Over a decade of experience covering the Nittany Lions from reporter Ben Jones. Lively commentary from columnist Mike Porman and others. Local perspective, local expertise, local information from Penn State's hometown website, StateCollege.com. Trust StateCollege.com for daily coverage of the school, team, and place you love.